Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM Podcast. My guest is Taylor Young, who's a musician, producer, mixer, and owner of the Pitt Studios in California. He's also been in some really excellent extreme acts, such as Nails and Twitching Tongues, and has worked with bands like Suicide Silence, among many others, in the studio. Here goes. Taylor Young, welcome to the URM Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. I don't know if you're not allowed to talk about who connected us. I think I am. All right. Well, I really respect Mark's, I guess, aesthetic when it comes yeah. to production because I've always, I've always liked the way mostly have liked uh, Suicide Silence's mixes and productions because they, you know, they keep it real, which I really, do, really yeah. like. And he told, yeah, he told me that. I needed to talk to you because that is your thing. So I went and I did my research on your work and was like, yeah, this is awesome. Because I think that when you, in heavy music, when you specialize in having recordings and productions and mixes that have that energy, that raw sort of energy, it's very easy to like cross the line into just sounding unfinished or sounding like shit or you know what I mean? Like it's to actually have something that has that raw energy. Yeah. But sounds good. That's tough. I'm self-taught. So some early stuff was just smash and go and kind of tweak from there. And uh, I definitely listened to, I listened to records from even as early or as late or early as 2013 where I'm like, damn, I didn't even finish this. (laughs) So is it your definition of what's finished is has evolved or you actually didn't finish yeah it's just growing up over the years and getting just more tuned here i guess yeah that makes sense now in order to pull off what you pull off i imagine that you need bands that are basically dtf with this style of production and who can actually hang like they can actually play i'm saying that because we know that in modern heavy music there are lots of bands who can't play their shit in the studio. Oh, I mean, 
I still deal with that a good bit, but at the same time, it's a majority of people who come very prepared. I also deal in hardcore bands who don't have money for a lot of days. So we got to get it done fairly quick comparatively to most things. What does quick mean for you? Like we do albums in five days or something like that. That is very quick. Yeah. So say that you only have five days to do an album. Do you have any sort of pre-pro or like preparation time or like, is there anything that you do before? That'll kind of only work if it's a band that's going with no grid or anything like that. Like they'll get here, we'll start tracking drums with scratch guitar and that's it. And usually if it's going to work, we have drums done by like the beginning of the second day. And then we even have like vocals starting at the end of the second day so that we can sprinkle it for the whole week rather than having the person's voice blow on the last day or something like that. So you're saying that if the band wanted to use a click, it wouldn't be doable. That would take like a half a day at least. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so basically they just need to come in ready to throw down. Yeah. If they were to come in with the clicks? Yeah, that that's happened a few times and definitely helps. But usually a band that brings their clicks needs them. So there's a little bit more post work that kind of goes yeah. with it as you're as you're going. I try not to be wondering if it's good. Like I'll I'll kind of edit as I'm going. Whereas I feel like some people mm-hmm. just kind of like, "Oh yeah, it's fine. That's good enough." Whereas I, I kind of don't like to gamble when it, we are doing it to a click. When we're not doing it to a click, I'm still doing some editing, like whole whole track splicing like or multi-track splicing and things like that. But yeah, it's, de- it's definitely fast. I like that idea of not wanting to wonder if it's good. Is it like one of those commit as early as possible? But is it like the goal is get something that you can commit to so you can move on? Pretty much. Or like... You know, we get the take as good as we can get it, and then I'll go in and do quick splices to make sure it's at least rocking enough to be okay with it, like, in that stage. And then I'll do some more tightening once guitars are there, just because something, some shittiness kind of pops out sometimes. It seems to me like the commitment side of it is really important. Man, I actually think that that's one of the most important things that producers and mixers really, no matter what they're doing uh should get comfortable with like even if they are doing stuff that's totally in the box like 100 percent like fake drums and amp sims and like you know the polar opposite i guess uh even in that case i feel like the best mixers i know uh like to commit to things pretty early on i love it i actually because i have a really small drum room or i use a bricasty reverb on on the room mics pretty often and while before we start tracking, I'll find a like a room sound I like and commit to it rather than tracking the dry room and then keep it and running it later. So it's kind of like picking what studio I want to be in almost. Like mm-hmm. if I were going to take it to a drum room, I would be committed to that drum room. So why, yeah. wouldn't I, why wouldn't I do that on the front end here? And if it's a good room... Nobody ever complains about that. I mean, that's one of that's one of the things universally that people want to commit themselves to. A hundred percent, yeah. They spend extra thousands of dollars on that one sound. So you just make sure that you get as close to or that sound that you're looking for before anything is committed, I guess, to hard drive. And that makes a lot of sense to me, I think. I guess you got to trust your decision making, though. I do, and, and that's just, but that comes from... 12 years of doing this, like I've figured out what to do and what not to do 
still didn't happen as fast as it should have, but but it did. <laughs> I mean, this shit takes a long time. It really does. I talk a lot about committing to things and how important it is. And uh, what I feel like I hear back as feedback from you know listeners and students of URM is that that's great advice, but if they don't know what to commit to in that like they have a hard time understanding what good is, then it makes it really hard because they don't have the confidence yet to know that they're committing to something good. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Like I've, uh, what I say to them is, well, you should commit to something anyways. And then if you commit to it and it sucks, then you have information for next time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But like, you're not going to get good at committing to things if you don't just start committing to things. You're not going to get good at doing the thing without doing the thing, basically. Yeah, you got to do it wrong a bunch of times and and learn the hard way. Yeah. Is that something that you started doing early on? Oh, yeah. My dad is an engineer, but he was like a tech manager for TV stuff. So he was the master of knowing how the gear worked and why, but applying it wasn't ever his thing. So I still had to kind of like learn that myself. Whereas like I understood how to connect everything and put it together via his help, but I didn't understand what did what and why, or like what mic was good where. I had to learn all these things on my own, and this was like sort of pre-YouTube, so I wasn't really able. I got a fucking C in a recording class, <laughs> and it, yeah, it was definitely a lot of guessing and checking for a long time. Yeah, I mean, knowing your gear is really important, I think, but the application is the whole other side of it. I see... A lot of people on YouTube who, I guess, like, for instance, uh, you see some people, like, shooting out, like, converters and doing all these, like, complex, complicated, unscientific tests uh, with, like, sine waves and things like that and trying to come to a conclusion on what's better than what. And I've, and I've thought to myself, well, this is really bad and really misleading <laughs> because there's no application here. Showing a bunch of gear with sine waves is not not real life. It's not musical. It's not musical. Like people who make records who choose certain pieces of gear, they're choosing them for a reason and they like what it does for a reason. Great mixers aren't like, all right, I need new converters. Let's run some sine waves through a bunch of them. That's going to be <laughs> the answer. Let's find it. Yeah. What's, what is this one synth note? Where is it going to sound the best? Yeah. It, no, it, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. I do think that the best way to learn this stuff is to just do it and do it some more and do it some more and just be comfortable with the idea of sucking for a long time. Yeah, I was comfortable with it because I was still kind of getting what I wanted out of it because I've been listening to music for all of my life just as an intense hobby. And so, you know, I would just push guitars to where I wanted them without any kind of technical knowledge, really, and just getting the sounds. And I gained the technicality later. But I still kind of get the same. I, I look back and I'm like, I'm still kind of getting the sounds that I was aiming for back then. You just know what to do with them better now, I guess. Yeah. I know how to get it on the front end without like going, oh, fuck, well, just how do I get this low end? Just crank the low end all the way up. <laughs> so, you know, at Nail the Mix, we get like hundreds upon hundreds of submissions for the mix competition every month. Mm -hmm. And it's been happening for, you know, years and years now. And uh, also we do these one-on-ones with some of the students where they'll send us their mixes. And one thing I noticed is with some of the beginners is 
okay, so their mixes aren't good, but you can tell that they understand the music side of it. Like you can tell like they are going in a good direction. Like there's some sort of a, even though the mix is shitty, there's like this feel to it or like this, it's hard to explain, but like it has the vibe and maybe the balance. Yeah. Something to where like, you're like, okay, this person gets the music. All they need to do is get some of the technicality and then in you know, give them a few years yeah, and they're going to be good. I think it's important that people understand the musicality side of it. And I think that you kind of got to understand that going in. Yeah, definitely. I could be wrong, but I feel like that's hard to pick up later. Every band I've ever worked with that like worked with an engineer who was only an engineer told me they had a terrible time. Like an engineer who isn't really musical in some way. Or like, I think it, it would be very weird for an engineer to not be like a core music fan, but they end up engineering other stuff like outdoor things and movies and things like that, which is cool. But like to think about somebody who's not an insane music fan, recording music is fucking psycho to me. Okay, so check this out. Now, I agree with you, but there are a couple outliers I can think of. So like TLA is not a musician. Chris. No, his brother, Tom. Oh, Tom. Fuck. Yeah, his brother, Tom... And people can argue which one's the better mixer, right? They're both godly. I didn't know there was another one. (laughs) Oh, well, they've worked on a lot of similar projects and have worked together a lot. And, you know, they're neck and neck is how good they are. Like Tom did like lots of the Blink-182 stuff. And I mean, similar career. That's why it missed me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. But anyway, similar career trajectory of just like, top shit. And I remember talking to him on the podcast and him saying that he's not a musician and he feels like he has an advantage as a mixer because he can listen to it like a member of the audience. Like he's not like bound by understanding the music side of it or thinking about it like we do. I think that he's an outlier though. Jerk, Colin Richardson, the metal producer. Yeah. One of my favorites. Yeah. Mine too. He's not a musician. Hmm. Weird. Some people have told me he's barely an engineer. Yes. He works with amazing engineers, but he knows what he's doing. He mixed my band's record like a while ago. He's got vision. The records speak for themselves. Yeah. He's like an old school kind of mixer producer where there's like the engineer and then there's the producer mixer. Yeah. Like the vision. He's got that. But I mean, I feel like that is such an outlier type situation. And nowadays with the way that music is made and the way that musicians all kind of record a little bit, I don't know. I, I feel like it's important for producers to to be music people. Do you find that your drum career has translated in some way over to the production career or informed it or helped it? Yes, especially because I did a lot of those records with Kurt. So going and recording with Kurt oh, yeah. is what kind of kicked my ass into being more technical. Because I'm watching this fucking genius walk around, just knowing every little nook and cranny, what everything does. Like, there's no there's no question. He can name literally everything he's doing. And I'm like sitting there going, oh, how do I get my mosh parts to sound like this? Like, he definitely influenced me into being technical and, and better and knowing what the fuck I'm talking about and doing. He's a perfect example because his style is like the pinnacle, I think, of whatever you want to call that thing. The raw thing sounds like it's going to like decapitate someone because it's so fucking intense sounding. Uh, he is technical as fuck, man. He, he does know everything that he's doing. Like there's no guesswork. It's down to the literal wires. Yep, exactly. I think that that's a great 
person to have gotten to learn from. So you were already producing and engineering when you worked with him. Yeah. Did he know that you were doing that? Oh, yeah, because I was over his fucking shoulder. Cool. <laughs> Good. I'm sure that he was very forthcoming with information. He was and very patient with my constant questions and still is. If there's anybody I fucking annoy on the Internet, it's probably him. <laughs> I mean, dude, he's he's fucking great. Before you worked with him, did you think that, I guess, this style of production was more, I guess, casual? I don't know if casual is the right word. I get what you mean. I think I was comfortable in my ignorance, if that makes sense. Like, I, I, I didn't care that I didn't do anything, do it, like, correctly, as long as it sounded the way I wanted it to. And going to him made me care, for sure. Well, you just see how much better things can get. When you see someone that's a master of it. when Yeah, when you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, it's super helpful. Do you think at all that you being or having been in a band that is very respected helped with your studio clients, like getting trust from them, for instance? I think when giving song notes, probably, more so than like coming to me just record. But when I would help with yeah, actual music, it was taken seriously. Yeah, you know, we get asked all the time, what can I do to like get more clients or like get my career off the ground? And one of the things that I think is really, really helpful is if you are a musician, if you are a producer that's a musician is, uh, you know, try to take your music seriously because it gives you a vehicle. Like if you don't have an active studio yet with people coming through, all you really do have is your music. So that is what you can use to have people hear what you're capable of. And then if your music does well, I mean, A, you're going to meet a bunch more people and B, musicians will know that you kind of know what you're talking about because you do it too. Yeah. And I was always comfortable with only having the music. That recording side was kind of a bonus for a long time. I only recorded bands because I met bands playing shows. That's how it all started for sure. So how, how would you approach them about it or did they approach you like they approached me because they liked my band's recordings got it so exactly what i just described yeah so yeah if you if you're confident in your own shit then it'll come you don't really have to do much selling or marketing really if you have some sort of a way to meet people yeah if you if your work's in place if your work's in place um and you're confident in it and uh there's some way for you to be a part of some sort of a scene. I think that it will come if the quality's there. Yeah. I've only cold called one band in my entire life and they wanted it, which was cool. They did? Yeah. How did you pull that off? I'm just wondering because it's the hardest thing for me to do is cold call someone. It was kind of on the spot because we were in the middle of a conversation. I was like, well, if you ever want to record here, I'm, I'm there. And he's like, actually, that's a good idea. Like immediately. And then we've done four records together since then. Okay, but you didn't just call them out of nowhere. Oh, no, no. Well, it was a person I know, but who hadn't worked with me before. Okay. And it was, and it sounds like in the conversation, it was natural. Yeah, totally. It was like an organic place. Yeah. I think that that's really important. It's very different than like just random spamming people or random cold calling people or any of that stuff that people try doing. Yeah, it's weird. It is really weird. It's weird to do for yourself, and it's weird to have done to you. So, like, there's no good way to do it, really. I can't think of a good way to do it. I wish people would stop doing it, honestly, for themselves. Yeah, with everything. <laughs> Man, I just think it's hard for people who they're not, like, actively in a position where they're getting respect 
for the music they make. Like they don't know anybody yet. Maybe they're 16 and are like in a, some small town and know literally nobody. It's hard for them to understand how this could possibly work. It is, yeah. I think it happens to most people that are doing it either by accident or in this capacity, or they started as a runner somewhere and just worked their way up. Like, there's no real way to just be like, I exist in the middle of Iowa and become a big mix engineer. <laughs> no, <laughs> not really. How did it progress to where you were doing this as a job? It kind of spiraled from literally one band's demo around... I had recorded a few things of Friends, but there was one band's demo that came to me. It was like 2009, and... Everybody heard the demo. The band kind of started to do well within like a month or two because this was like CDR days. Like somebody just heard it and wanted to come to me within two months, and then a bunch of the a bunch of the other local bands did it, and all of those bands blew up. So this was like this was a band from San Diego called World of Pain. It was Shababa from Pomona, Rotting Out from LA. Like all these bands in a row, and they all exploded within a year. So it was kind of lucky. Yeah, that's great. And then it just snowballed into more and more work. So I just start. I started making records all the time. And then I would go tour. So it was just kind of a finding a balance of recording and touring. That's actually what I've told people is uh, there's two ways to make this happen. One is you work with a band that does well because of, you know, based off of what you did with them. And there's that path, which is actually really tough. Like, there's some luck involved with that. I honestly think it's fully luck for me. But, I mean, they may, maybe they did come because they like the sound, and obviously that makes sense, but, like, I got lucky that they didn't suck as a band. Yeah, yeah. And the part about them, the audience liking it, that's the luck. You can't control that. No, not at all. Still can't figure it out. Yeah, I mean, nobody can. We can't predict the future. Uh, we can make educated guesses sometimes, but... Yeah, like whether or not the public is going to take an interest in something, that's luck. But if that happens, that's one path, I think. And then, like you said, the other path is, yeah, you start as a runner somewhere and uh, right. work your way up. Which I've seen that happen, and it's awesome. Yeah. I actually think that's the more common way of doing it. At least here, for sure. Well, I mean, you're not going to do that in the middle of Iowa, probably. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just don't know of any other ways to make it happen if... Producing bands is what you want to do. Thought about it real hard. Like, I do you know of a third path? I don't. Honestly, no. Yeah, me neither. I'm trying to think of friends who have done it, and they either fit one or the other. They either just went and did it, and they play music, or they or they started as a runner. Or, you know, live sound. They transition in a live sound when one doesn't work out. Yeah, there's that. I don't even understand it. It's like a completely different beast. Dude, I hate it. Yeah. Have you done it? Hate it. Not... Professionally, I've been in situations where a friend of mine's band is coming through on tour and I go hang out with them and then they put me on the spot and they're like, we don't have a sound guy on this tour. Could you please do this show? It's like, you really don't want that. I don't do live sound. They're like, no, no, trust me. You, How bad can it be? Like, it'll be better than like the house guys. Like, you don't know that. But yeah, I've been like backed into a corner and done it then. And hated every moment of it. It's hectic. Hated it. For no reason. Well, for a good reason, but it's insanity. And there's so many other factors. Like, you got to worry about power overhead and all that other shit. And, and, like, you have to 
uh, understand that every fucking room is different. Everybody brings in meters for every room and shit like that. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah, and by the time you're getting it dialed, it's over. And then that's it. Nothing. (laughs) The end. Like, what? It's not for me at all. I'm impressed by anybody who does it. Oh, yeah, man. Good sound guys, sound people are very, very impressive because they're able to think very fast on their feet in a very high-pressure scenario, and they're able to get things sounding good very quickly in the amount of time that it would take in the studio to like tune some drums. Yeah. The show's over. Yeah. Straight up. Yeah. It's, it's kind of amazing. I just, uh, I, I don't, it's not for me. I, I don't, I feel like the, that kind of pressure, if I'm going to be under that kind of pressure, I have, I have to feel like there's a good reason for it. And to me, that's not a good reason. I agree. If I'm in a band though, it's a good reason. I'm very happy. There's somebody who is into feeling that kind of pressure. Yeah, definitely just had a scenario where not having a sound guy was fucking detrimental to an entire show, pretty much. On tour or just a show? It was a home show, but at a new venue that doesn't have like a house guy yet. And we had a sound guy the first night and then just didn't the second night. So it was like me, the venue owner who had just gotten the console and... The guitar player of my band, who is also good with sound stuff, like all three of us, like looking at it like it's a fucking math problem. We can't, none of us can figure out. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Yeah, we survived. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Let's talk a little about guitar tone, because uh, you have some very crushing, aggressive, badass guitar tones, 
but Thank you're you. a drummer. I also play guitar. Okay. All right. That's what I wanted to know. Because I was going to say, usually people who are really good at guitar tone play guitar because it's real hard, in my opinion, to understand how guitar tone works without having some like practical knowledge of how it all works. And I would say most of the bands that came to me to record initially were bands I played with in the bands I played guitar in. Okay. They didn't come because of the bands I played drums in. Got it. Let's talk a little bit about your approach, if you don't mind. Do you use go-tos? Like, do you have a, like a mainstays, or are you trying to do something brand new every single time? A little bit of both. I have a Marshall JMP that, like, is on every other record, at least. It's a fucking monster. It's got, like, a gain mod on it, and it has... 60, it's running on 6550s, so it's literally the, a powerhouse. That ends up on most things, but otherwise I am constantly tinkering with other shit or doing blends of different amps and things like that. I do... I, I, there was a record I did last year that was a blend of four amps that I had on each performance that just doesn't sound like anything. So is that also like four separate cabinets? Uh, four cabs, yeah. One per, like, one line. Okay. But I had one line going into four pedal chains that were feeding four different amps. And then would it be summed before it got back in? No, I just track all five tracks and get a good blend, like, while we're tracking, and then have the ability to move it later. Make sure everything everything's in phase and jiving and things like that. So no matter how I blend it, it's good. Yeah, that's one of the hardest parts, I think, of using multiple microphones with guitars is figuring out the phase situation of it all. And then the electrical. Yeah, as long as you have similar distance and things like that. Electrical, I've had I've had the fucking breakers trip a few times from too many amps. When using more than one amp, the electrical becomes a serious, uh, a serious beast to contend with. Yeah, all of my splitters are active, so I don't get too much ground hum, but with the high gain, it's like inevitable. Yeah, when you do come up with a tone that has like four amps, are you... Thinking of it in terms of that idea that each tone has a specific purpose. This one is where I'm getting my mid-range from. This is the low end, or is it a little looser than that? It could go either way. Like A lot of the time, if I'm running two amps, each one has a job. But if I'm running four, it's like I'm just kind of getting an ignorant blend of things where it's just like it doesn't sound like any specific amp because it's so many. Sometimes you do just got to get... An ignorant blend. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. And that was the that was the whole purpose of that record was like just go be as insane as possible. I love that. I mean, I feel like sometimes that's just the criteria: is does it sound does it sound like shit's exploding or not? Right. Yes. Cool. Yeah. That was a band the called uh, Regional Justice Center, and that record does sound like shit's exploding the whole time. Regional Justice Center. Yeah. Are they on your site? Uh, their cover is, but they don't put their band name on their album covers and it is a point of contention between us <laughs> but it's because they they think the art is so good they don't want to sully it the, the album's called prime crime and punishment all right i i just want to hear what this sounds like real quick absence uh, yeah that, that one's good i'm on their band camp that's all that's up here okay cool it sounds like it's exploding that's awesome. Sure does. Man, I love tones like those. You know, I don't normally talk about gear and stuff like that on this podcast. It's more about the other stuff. But like tones like these, I think they're really hard to make good. I agree. Because you can descend into total garbage very 
easily. It can be a mess. Yeah. I mean, I know that the real answer is it's, it depends, right? Depends on the scenario, but how do you keep things from becoming a mess? Like, are there certain things that you do or is it just like, I just don't let it become a mess? I've had it become a mess a few times. It's kind of just knowing what amp is going to produce what and what pedal is going to help it. So it's like, I don't really, I'm not going to put two tube screamers on two marshals and be like, why don't they sound different? Or like, why isn't this working together? Because I'm going to put a fuzz pedal on one and I'm going to put a smooth one on another. And I know that they're going to work together. And as long as I can get the phase right. I also have like a phase tool that can go with not just a 180 flip. I can get like right in the cracks of it. Which one is it? It's just the phaser, the radial phaser. Oh, okay. Radial phaser. That thing's good. I did have one not that long ago be a disaster where I was like getting ahead of myself. And it was just like a thrash record where it could, it could have just been a simple one amp. It would have sounded awesome. And I spent literally eight hours trying to get an amp blend because I like thought that's what I had to do. And I ended up with one amp and two mics and it sounds awesome. So it's just kind of like there's a give and take of knowing what the record calls for and what the music calls for and knowing what it should be. You said something really interesting just now. You said, because I thought that's what it needed to be. Yeah. And I want to talk about that some because... uh is it you thought that that's what would get the right tone on the record or like you were kind of got to get lots of mics on this and like this blend because that's what we do or something like Some, one it was of those a little weird, of both where I'm locked like, locked into it yeah the I really wanted to outdo the first record which was mm-hmm. which was just a simple well where I did the reamp at one time where I had left and right reamping at the same time which it was that was only from my enjoyment pretty much but it was really simple and i just wanted to make this one way bigger and more insane and it just didn't need it it just needed a tight nice guitar tone because there were so many like intricate riffs so everything i was doing was out of phase or like there was this annoying top end hiss that was making the whole thing suck and yeah just simplicity is sometimes the move yeah one of the hardest things to do as a producer, as a songwriter, really, as any sort of creative person is knowing when to back off. You know, so like, I I forget who said this, but this really great quote about a great producer knows when to get the fuck out of the way, yeah. which could be translated to a great mixer knows when not to add things mm-hmm. and when not to add processing. It's a similar sort of thing, like knowing when it's too much or what's just enough is a big part of the job actually. Yeah, for sure. Like I remember recently, a few months ago, one of our communities of URM is like a mix crit community. We keep that separate from the main community because we don't want it to become a <laughs> deluge of people <laughs> asking for that stuff. So yeah, so we keep the mix crits in their own corner. But I remember this one dude posted a picture of a cabinet with like seven microphones on it Mm -hmm. and was like, what can I do to make this better? Check this tone out. And I listened and it was crap, dude. It was out of phase garbage. Do less, bro. Try one. All right. (laughs) One, you know, if it doesn't sound good with one, it's definitely not going to sound good with two or three or four or five or six. It might sound incomplete with one, but if it doesn't already sound good, like if, you're not like, okay. Then the tone is the problem. Yeah. Not the mic selection. Exactly. It's, and you're not going to 
create a better tone by just adding more microphones. You're going <laughs> to make things way worse. Yeah, because you're trying to capture, not you're not creating a tone with your mic combo. You, I mean, you kind of can, but if you're... You source, tweak if your source tone. sucks, then you, it sucks. How much do you think that the source is in the player's hands? How much do you think is gear? 50-50. Because I constantly get people who can't pick hard enough. Like I have a, an identical setup to a record that is awesome. And I get a guy who like has these weak-ass right hand playing or just you know no left-hand chops. Um, but if the player rocks and the gear rocks, it will rock. If the gear sucks, honestly, I can get a good tone out of shitty amp half the time too. If I have like a couple pedals, then I'll, I'll be fine. Okay, so I do think gear is important. Obviously, it's important, but it's less, in my opinion, I think 50-50 is being generous to the gear. It probably is. Yeah, yeah. because like you just said, if the hands suck, no gear is going to fix it. But if the hands are great, you can get around bad gear. I think I can. Yeah, so maybe you're right. Maybe it's more like 80-20. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 75-25. Yeah, 80-20, 75-25. Man, because like with drums too, if you have a great drummer that hits great and you do a good job miking a shitty drum set with old heads or whatever, out of tune heads, it'll still sound pretty fucking good if it's a drummer that plays really, really well. Yeah. You know, so just slams really great, has a great pocket, great feel, like just great phrasing, like great control, like all of that stuff that goes into being a great drummer. Like I've definitely experienced it where a less than ideal drum set sounds far better than a shitty drummer on the most amazing kit in like some studio with like an API console and all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, a shitty drummer, drummer ruins an entire record. They do. It's, it's over. I did an indie record that had arguably the worst drum set of all time the deadest heads and they didn't have any they didn't think about that and i had to fly in to do this record so it was like what we have is what we're using and it sounded awesome because he wasn't even a particularly hard player but he was he like was right in the pocket and knew knew what was going to do what he did these tiny little <laughs> brush fills on these dead ass tom heads and it sounded awesome there you go Perfect example. A good musician can work in and on less than ideal scenarios and gear and make it work for sure. So that said, when you do encounter musicians who are not up to par, given that you know you are going for the real type of production, you can't just like fake them. Oh no. What's your approach when like they're not ready? Like, they paid for the time they're there. Drummer sucks. I just sent a band home two weeks ago. Okay. Yeah, it was a nightmare scenario because they drove from 20 hours away. And uh, we did the whole pre-production day. They had, like, a nine days booked or something. Yeah, we did the whole pre-production day and spent hours trying to get through a single track. And it wasn't happening, and the drummer was playing to a click, and it wasn't even, like... 50% good. And they had a guitar player in the band who was really good at drums, but didn't know the songs at all or the uh, intricacies on the kit. And wasn't capable of learning them in time. Yeah, but we would have burned like four days on drums or something like that, Got probably. It. And it was just like, guys, well, I was going to tough it out and just edit the fuck out of them if I had to. Mm -hmm. The guitar player was like, well, we really want to sub in the guitar player because I think he's going to do better. And I was just like, he may do better, but then we're not finishing the record and it's not going to be very good. 
And they were like, yeah, I get it. And I was like, if I were in your position, and this is coming from the person who would like to get paid the other half of the deposit, I would pack up and go home. And they were like, yeah, well, that's kind of what we were thinking. And they, and they did. Hope they don't break up. I don't think they will. I'm just saying that because you know that, <laughs> you know, that sometimes fans break up after that. I do believe there is a lineup change in the band already. Good. I mean, I would be pretty pissed off if I drove 20 hours, was getting ready for the studio, and one of my band members just couldn't do it, like couldn't play the parts. They weren't able to practice because I guess they live kind of far from each other. And what was crazy is that the drummer was like the dude who planned it with me. Crazy. I feel bad because he's probably going to listen to this. He listens to all my stuff. So sorry, dude. You're a great person. He is a great person. He's pretty bummed already. So they'll be okay though. Even if they don't come back to me, which is if they end up doing that, it's totally fine. Hope they figure it out. There, there was a band years ago that the same thing happened where they came in to do their demo and they had a situation where the guitar player who wrote the songs wasn't good enough to like play them well. And then the yeah. other other guitar player was really good and didn't know them. So there was this weird constant handoff that was happening. Teach them the riff, play the riff, teach them the riff, play the riff. I'm like, guys, you have two days booked. <laughs> okay, so that would ha- that would happen in my band a lot, but we had a lot of studio time always. Yeah. And that was the known dynamic. Right. That's how we worked was like, I write... 85% of the stuff. The other guitar player in my band is like a, an Olympic athlete level guitar player. That's amazing. Yeah, one of the very best on the planet in metal. Like, I'm okay. I'm not bad. I'm pretty good, but not like this. I will never be as good <laughs> as him. Doesn't matter. I could practice 12 hours a day for the next 25 years, and I still will not be as good as he was when he was 18. <laughs> It's important to understand that. So yeah, there were a lot of times where I would show him a thing and then he would learn it and track it. I mean, some of the songs we would come in already having totally, totally done. But I mean, we'd be in the studio for like eight weeks. That's a long time. Yes, it's a long time. It allows for stuff like that. But if you only have two days, that is not going to work. That is going to be a very stressful situation. Oh, yeah. So I sent them home. After we had one single guitar track for one song after like three hours or something like that. And I was just like, you guys, you don't have any money and I don't need to take it. Go get good. And they came back with a new guitar player and the guitar player who wrote everything became the singer. And they fucking crushed. And then they they were a band for like five years. They were called Skin Father. They were like an entombed kind of band. That's cool. They did a great LP and played a ton throughout California. So it worked out. Yeah, it was awesome. And they were glad they didn't have a weak product. I like that approach of just dealing with it head on and not letting things suck, basically. I feel like most of the time, musicians will appreciate that. I do think there's probably always going to be, if you have to have that conversation, some people won't understand it. They will just want to get it done now. But uh, I do think that people who do care will appreciate that sort of approach. They took it well. They were all kind of people who were in bands a lot. They wanted to take it seriously from the get-go. Makes sense. So let's talk about your pedal that's coming out. Okay. This is the first time I'm talking about it. So it's a combination of an overdrive and a fuzz. Tell me more. It is two separate circuits in one pedal box with a universal bypass in the center. So you can turn on either one 
and the, or both at the same time with the center switch. It's based on a classic rat and the classic yellow boss overdrive. The combo created a lot of, I'll say, it created a lot of great tones in Florida, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Sure does. It's a pedal combo I used all the time, and it fucking drove me insane trying to get the vintage pedals to fucking operate properly. So I was like, okay, I would like a modern version, and I would always put an EQ after the pedals to boost the low end because they're fucking vintage pedals. So I have each circuit has a low end on it as well, like a, a low boost. And then the there's a switch to change the order of the two pedals, so you can pick which one is first in the sequence. That's cool, and so so you can use one or the other or both. Right, it's built to use both, which is a psycho level of gain. Yeah, you could say that. I figure if someone's gonna buy a pedal from me, they're expecting a psycho level of gain. Can you adjust the ratio of one to the other? Yeah, well, so they each have their own level control and gain control. Got it, actually sounds pretty damn cool. It's fucking awesome. I used it on the new Suicide Sounds stuff and i've used it nice, on very it. nice i've used it on one out of every four records for the last year i've had a prototype for a year oh cool when's it coming out i'm hoping it'll come out early next year and it's a, a collaboration with my friend michael klein who is the builder and he's the technical whiz what's it called it's called the oni i like this idea man that's a great uh, combo of pedals actually sick uh, i think anybody who Likes it will enjoy it. I would say when you plug it in, be careful with the gain on your amp. Pull that shit down because <laughs> you'll have a hot mess. Is it meant to be the an amount of gain to where the amp should have none or have some? Not none, but but low. Okay. If you're aiming for a big chug, your amp should be on uh, like an ACDC setting. Okay. All right. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, very curious to check that out when it's a check out a bull. Awesome. Do you make gear or is that a new thing? This will be my first time. Okay. What inspired you to start making gear? I guess it was more that I just wanted this pedal to exist because it, it is something I'd use all the time. Yeah. Makes sense. I find that a lot of the best gear is that is like somebody has been duct taping certain things together for a while. There's just something that doesn't exist. They're looking for a tool. Yeah. They're looking for a tool that did not exist. And I'm definitely really pleased with the outcome. I have a couple of different versions of it too that all sound a little different in a good way. Like one has all vintage chips um, so it can go kind of full Slayer almost. And then the other is uh, mm -hmm. the one that's going to be public is is more modern tech in it. Not tech, but like modern uh, parts. Yeah, makes sense. I'm actually excited to try that one out. I'm not just saying it. Awesome. I love that idea. I look forward to your results. Yeah, it doesn't sound like something that I've heard of before, which is cool. That's awesome. Well, I mean, do we need another Tube Screamer emulation? Oh, no. Yeah. I've got fucking five. Yeah, five out of 50,000. But really, I just need the one. I, I use the... the SC9 Plus the most. That's my favorite one. It's a good one. But I mean, that's kind of the thing is like whenever I hear about people making pedals, I'm a little cynical. My first thought is, do we really need another tube screamer? Yeah. That's always my first thought. It's really, really cool when someone is doing something that doesn't already exist. It's like we don't need more emulations of the same shit. We need new ideas, I think. Or you can go buy a tube screamer. Like, you can go buy that. <laughs> exactly right. It's just like with plugins. It's like, yeah, I get why we have emulations. I get why we have, like, a few different ones. 
But at some point, like how many more versions of an SSL channel strip do we need? I was literally going to say the same thing, the actual same thing. Well, I have three and I use one. Yeah, of course. Do they sound different? I don't think so. Maybe a little, but not enough to matter. For SSL, I'm just going in and pushing either 5K or 8K and calling it a day. I'm not really doing much more than that on that thing. Yeah, I just think that so much of this stuff is marketing hype and uh, sales tactics. That It's important for people who are buying this stuff and using this stuff to just realize that lots of companies have to stay in business. And so lots of products, I'm not saying that they half-ass them. They do not half-ass them. Right. But uh, they're not always going to have like this innovative idea that's going to change the world as we know it. They're just going to build their library more. Yeah. Their vision of their library being complete equals having an SSL emulation, an 1176 emulation, even though there's a million other ones. In order for them to see their library is complete, it includes that too. But that doesn't mean you have to buy it. It has to have the vintage stuff. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to buy it if you already have one you like. Right. I like the weirder tools, for, at least for plugins, like looking for different filters and para EQs and things like that. To me, that stuff's more fun than, than branded shit. Weirder like what? Fab filter and stuff like that. I guess that's not weird, but like things that aren't versions of gear. Yeah. Plugins that are their own thing specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Not trying to recreate something that they'll never be able to recreate. Yeah. Not something I can buy a box of. Yeah. Makes sense. Because I figure if you can buy the box of it, you would rather buy the box of it. I would. Yeah. But obviously they have the emulations because not everybody can do that. Yeah. Some of them are all right. But yeah, I, I understand completely what you're saying is that, and I actually do prefer plugins that are designed to be plugins from the inception. So I don't have any issue with digital tools. Like I'm all about the future, but like, I do think that the ones I enjoy more are the ones that were from conception to inception. They are digital tools. Yeah. So that's, that's how they came about. They were meant to be in that world. They're not taking something from another world. That's not to say that the emulations are bad or anything, just my preference. Right. They're all impressive. But yeah. yeah, I would rather Absolutely. use a plugin that's a plugin. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Well, Taylor, I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure meeting you and uh, talking to you, and uh, I love your work. Thank you. I had a blast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.